Thank you so much for being here. As I said, we are in the third week of our series, uh, So Will I, as we've been taking a look at worship and have divided it into three questions. Uh, the, the why of worship, the what of worship, and the how. And we started week one talking about the what of worship. What is it? And with the idea that you and I are created to worship. We're created for worship. There is an inherent need within all of humanity to give honor and praise and reverence to someone or something. And so we talked about what it is. And first of all, what it is, is it's not something that I consume, but it's something I give. Worship is not about me and it's not for me. It's fundamentally about him. Number two, that worship is love expressed. Where there is no expression, there is no worship. And three, it is every created part of who I am. It is not just about a Sunday morning and singing a few songs. It's everything about me worships. My heart, my mind, my job, whatever it is, I worship him. Last week, we talked about the why. Why do we worship? I gave you five things. The first one was this. We worship because God asked for it. Because he asked for it. He's the designer, he's the creator, and he asked for it, and therefore we give it. Secondly, because it's our purpose. He created us to worship. All of creation worships. Third, it's because of who he is. We worship him for who he is. Next was we worship because of what he's done. And finally, because worship changes everything. If you missed any of those messages, I would encourage you to go online, check those out, and, uh, and you can get caught up. Today, I want to talk about the how, the how of worship. How do we do it? And not specifically just how do we do it while we're in this setting, although we'll talk about this, but how do we worship in general, in our lives? What does that look like? I wanted to start in this passage of Scripture, John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. And this is an interesting passage. This is uh, when Jesus is with the woman at the well. Jesus stops there, uh, decides to wait and rest. And this woman comes uh, to get some, some water for, for herself. And she comes, and this conversation ensues. And it's a really interesting conversation because they weren't there to talk about worship. Actually, this lady has been married about six times. She's pretty well known in her, in her town for that reason. She'd been married six times. The man she was currently with was not her husband. This comes out in conversation. And she shifts it to worship. Really fascinating. And she says, well, I know our ancestors worship here and your ancestors worship there. And there will come a day, da, 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 da. And Jesus answers her and he talks to her about worship. And this is what he says. And it provides some really good insight for you and I. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship in spirit and to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So I heard that growing up a lot. Talking about worship, how do you worship? Spirit and truth. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what that means. Spirit and in truth. That God is looking for people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the first question I ask is what does that mean? It's good to say. This is what it is. But what does that mean? We can look at it on multiple levels. And the first level is this, that God, worship encompasses our head and our heart. It bridges the the gap between the intellectual and the emotional. Worship is not purely emotional and it's not purely intellectual. It is a convergence of the two. It bridges our heart and our head. Secondly, spirit is kind of this inward energy, that which animates us. You and I are a spirit. We have a soul. We live in a body. The spirit of God 
animates us, brings us to life. When God created humanity, he breathed his breath, his spirit, his ruach into Adam, and it animated him. I worship him in spirit. Truth is the outer kind of conformity or boundaries. Now, what does that mean? What that means is that wherever there's truth, there are boundaries within that truth, and there is a conforming to that truth. To put it more simply, truth is my actions, my words, how I live my life. If I say I'm a Christ follower and the Spirit of God lives in me, then my life should reflect what I say. That's truth. God is truth. And I conform to his truth. Okay? Now, here's what it also means, which I like this part. When he says worship him in spirit, what Jesus is doing, because she says, well, our ancestors worshiped here, and you guys worshiped here. What Jesus is saying this, worship is not centralized to a place or a building or a person. Worship begins and originates within the heart of an individual. Jesus is decentralizing worship. Here's why that's important. For many, many, many years, if you wanted to worship God in the Old Testament, you had to go to the temple. God's presence resided in the place of the temple called the Holy of Holies. That's where his presence was. And you had to be a priest to go in there. You couldn't even go in there if you were just an average person like you and I. What Jesus is saying is, look, that was never God's long-term intent. God does not want to live in a building. He has defined his temple as you and me. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives in us. So what does that mean? Wherever you go, God is. Wherever God is, you can worship. Does that make sense? Worship is not exclusive to this time and this space. Where God is, you are, there is worship. What he said, when you worship in spirit, what you're saying is God is a spirit. Therefore, he's in me and I can worship wherever I am. That's what he said. Worship in spirit. Wherever you go, worship. What's truth? It's the truth founded upon who God is and Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That when we worship, we worship because of who he is and that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of our lives. And it's that truth that I conform to. It's that truth that then takes hold of my life and I live within the boundaries of that. See, so it's not just singing. It's not just music. It's not just church. It's every part of who I am. And God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what it means. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you three spheres of worship. Okay, three areas, three ways to look at worship. We are going to talk about the seven words of praise and how those are not suggestions, but those are commands. But I want you to see those seven words of praise in context of these three spheres, okay? When I think of worship, I think of these three kind of categories. Number one is private. I have a private time of worship. That is the inner part of who I am. Now, what does that look like? That's praying, that's reading the scripture, that's singing songs of praise and hymn, whatever, whenever I'm, I'm by myself. That is developing the inner part of who I am. Who you are in private is who you really are. You want to change your life? Don't change your public persona. Change your private persona. Who are you when no one's looking is who you really are. It influences the rest of worship. So, 
Are you praying? Are you reading scripture on a consistent basis? I would say daily. How much? A word. Start somewhere. Especially now we're at the end of the year. Get a plan. We got it right on our website, faithcommunity.co slash, and click on the Bible tab. You can go in there and you can read scripture. Read the revelation of who God is. Pray, pray, sing, turn it in your car when you're on your way to work. Bible says make a joyful noise, not an in two noise, all right? Not a, sing, <laughs> sing. Spend time privately developing the inner part of who you are because when you go there, then you get to the second sphere, which is public. What's public worship? Do your words and your actions line up with what you profess to believe? Do you show up to work on time? Do you work hard? Do you have character? Do you have integrity? Do you acknowledge God in a public sphere? You know, one of the greatest tools of witnessing that you have is how you are when you're at your job. Working hard. Maybe doing a little extra. Not complaining. Treating people right. People will judge you by your actions, not by your words. All day long. Who cares what you say? Talk is cheap, right? How are you living? And if you're developing your inner private life or persona, however you want to say it, that is what will come out of you in public. That's what will come out of you. And it's worship. You all get to get up in the morning tomorrow and go to work. That's an opportunity for worship. Do your job and do it to the best of your ability. But I hate it. Either do it to the best of your ability or get a new one. But I can't. I don't know what to tell you. Work hard. Do your best. Acknowledge God in public. Make sure your words and your actions line up. That's a public worship. Influence primarily privately. Then we get to the third one. And this is what we get to do every week together. That's corporate. Corporate worship. Roughly 900 of you or so that come every week, we get to come into this room and we get to worship together corporately. But what we do privately and what we do publicly influences what we do corporately. Some of us only ever focus on one sphere of worship and that's corporate. I worship one day a week. I just went to a worship service. No, 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 no. That is kind of the culmination of the private and the public. If you are only worshiping one day a week for 18 minutes and three songs, you're missing out on a whole lot. Well, am I wrong if I don't do the other two? I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying you're missing out. You're missing out. Because it's so much more rich than that. I have private, I have public, and I have corporate. Now, I want to read to you what some people have said about corporate worship. If we try to define it, uh, it's really hard to, to find one definition. So I just found a lot of smart people who love Jesus, and they, and they try to define corporate worship. And I want to lead, read to you some of those. Ravi Zacharias says this, The worship service on Sunday morning is the point to which all of my life converges and the fountain from which all of my life emerges. What does that mean? All of us come here every week with life, right? Life happens. We all converge on this moment and this time. And it's a convergence of our lives, our public and our private lives. And when we come together in worship, there is something that will emerge forth from us. A song of praise, a shout of praise. It will be an emerging of our lives upward and outward. We get to do that together. It's a convergence And then something emerges from us as we come together and we worship corporately. There's nothing like corporate worship. 
Nothing. Here's what Tim Keller says, the pastor. We are called not simply to communicate the gospel to non-believers. We must also intentionally celebrate the gospel before them. What does that mean? Our worship is evangelizing. That we should worship in such a capacity here together that when someone who doesn't believe walks in the door, they are touched by worship. The way we worship evangelizes. That means that worship should be attractive. And I don't mean just musically and just vocally. It should be good on both of those fronts. If you can't sing, don't try. (laughs) If someone comes and wants to sing on our worship team, we make them try out. Why? Because if they can't sing, it's going to be a distraction. (laughs) If they can't play an instrument, they don't get to play an instrument. Right? It should be good in that capacity. There should be no distractions. You can come and sing. And when we corporately converge together and a sound of worship emerges from us, it changes people. It reveals God. Think about that. The way you worship, the way we worship together reveals God, ushers in his presence. It is attractional to people. That's why our worship can't be just focused on the person who doesn't know God. Our worship has to be focused on him. So people who don't know him want to know him because of the way that we worship. That's corporate worship. Here's what J.D. Greer says. Here's what corporate worship is. Awe combined with intimacy is the essence of Christian worship. Awe combined with intimacy is the essence of Christian worship. We come in, we stand in awe of who he is. And a God who is infinitely powerful is yet intensely personal. We stand in awe, yet we feel this this intimacy with the creator of the universe. It is the essence of our worship. It's like when you're in corporate worship and you feel something. Anybody ever felt something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel something. It engages you emotionally, viscerally. It engages you intellectually. God is in our midst. It is the essence of Christian worship. It's incredible. Something happens when we worship. We don't worship because something happens. We worship because of who he is. We worship because of what he's done. We worship because he asked for it. We don't worship when we get the goosey-goosies. We don't worship when we, when we, when we feel his presence. Then we, No, no, no. We worship and those things happen. Well, what if they don't? We worship anyway. It's not for us. It's not about us. But when God reciprocates that, whoa, it's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. And here's the last one. Paul David Tripp says this, corporate worship is a regular, gracious reminder that it's not about you, that you've been born into a life that is the celebration of another. That's what corporate worship is. It's not about me. It's the celebration of another. Who is the another? It is him. It is his son, Jesus. That's what we do when we come together corporately. It's not just to give people time to get here. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not an on-time person. But it's not less important than the preaching of the word. It is of equal importance. Equal importance. Now, I get it. Life happens. I got, I got a kid. I know. Life happens. But could I encourage you? Try to be on time, not to impress anyone, but to participate in worship. 
Don't say, ah, I just gonna, I come for the word. No, come for both. They work hand in hand, right? It's a beautiful thing, something that we get to do. Are you watching me? Do you know who comes? No, that's why I sit in front. I look ahead. I don't, I don't see who's here. I don't know who walks in and who doesn't. I just know that if I look at nine in the first service, it's less than if I look at 9.15. If I look at 10.45, it's less than if I look at 11. It just fills up. And I get it. I get it. But I'm just saying, don't rate one higher than the other. They're both important. Both important. So now what I want to do is I want to share with you the seven words of praise. Okay? Seven words of praise through the context of private, public, and corporate. Now remember, these words, the seven words in Hebrew for praise. When you read it in English, it all says praise. That's how rich Hebrew is and sometimes how impoverished English is. We got one word for praise. They've got seven. Seven. That means seven different things about worship. These are, these are commands, not suggestions. My encouragement to you through this whole thing as I talk about this is, if you're not doing any of these things, start doing them privately. Because what you do privately will be what you do corporately. Here at the end of service, we're going to worship. And we're going to put into practice some of these seven words of praise that we talked about. But my encouragement to you is start doing them privately. I don't want anyone to think, well, if I don't do that, I'm not worshiping. No. Hey, these are things for you to work on, not to feel guilty about. Here's the other thing about praise and worship. It has nothing to do with your personality. People who lift their hands don't have a personality of hand raising. Okay? It's not preferential. Okay? It is a decision that we make. It is an attitude of our heart. Now, I'm not saying if you don't yell and scream and lift your hands as high as you can that you're not worshiping. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is if God says to do it, I must look at the fact that I must do it. And I would encourage you to start privately, get comfortable doing it there, and then corporately it can happen. And it should happen because God said it should happen. So, seven words of praise. We talked about this one last week, but it's Hallel. Everybody say Hallel. Hallel. To rave, to boast, to celebrate. It's where we get our English word hallelujah. How many have said hallelujah here lately? You got a good report back from the doctor? Hallelujah. You got some bills paid? Hallelujah. Right? Your kid is, is being good at school? Hallelujah. Right? God answered a big old request? Hallelujah. You rave, you boast, you celebrate. Here's what it says in Psalms 35, 18. I will thank you in front of the great assembly. I will praise you before all the people. I will rave, boast, and celebrate of you. Hallel, hallelujah. Try it privately. Let's do it corporately. Hallel, God, for who he is. Rave, celebrate, boast of him. Here's number two. Yada, everybody say yada. To acknowledge in public. Here's what it says, Psalm 138. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will acknowledge you, O Lord, in public with all of my heart. You can do that publicly. Am I saying stand up in the middle of your workplace, raise your hands and start singing? No. No. Maybe kind of weird. Talk about them. Acknowledge them in public. Do that corporately as well. God, I, I will yada you today. I will acknowledge you publicly today. But yada. Number three, Barack. Anybody ever heard that name? Barack Obama? Barack. It means to bless by kneeling or bowing. 
to bless by kneeling around. Listen to this. Psalms 103. Praise the Lord, all my soul, all my inmost being. Bless by kneeling or bowing his holy name. Now, here's the thing about bowing. Let's get it. Let's face it. As Americans, we don't bow, do we? We don't bow to anybody. When's the last time you bowed? No, we don't bow. That's not what we do. It's weak to bow. In fact, we left a country that was a monarchy and became a a country who's not a monarchy because we would not bow to a king bow to a queen. See, we, we have this really cool thing in our culture, and I really like it. It's called egalitarianism, right? Like, you're no better than me. You got more money than me. You got a better job than me. You're CEO. It doesn't matter. We're the same people, right? Come over to my house, and let's cut the grass. Like, you know, yeah, you're not better than me. And that's a cool thing, because we prize when someone who's got more, has more, uh, has, you know, is, is, is a leader or whatever, when they'll do a menial task, we think, man, that person's a great leader, Right? We're equal. We're equal. When it comes to God, he, he's not egalitarian. He's a king. He's a monarch. And we bow. Now, I don't like that. I can't tell you. You know, I was thinking, have I, have I ever bowed? Maybe not on purpose, you know, but like, I just don't think of bowing. Like, I meet someone who I respect. Oh, no. You know, like, no. That's not what we do. Think about it. We don't do that. But I began to think through this process of bowing. And, and there are a couple times in my life where I would say that I have barocked in reverence and in honor. My grandfather, he, he died, and it'll be about four years ago in January. And one of the things I wanted from my grandfather, who was a pastor, a great man, I wanted him to pray a prayer of blessing over me. I wanted a double portion of what God had given him. That's what I wanted. So my grandfather was, was uh, in his last few days, and he was confined to his chair, and I went to where he was at, and I, I asked him, I said, I said, you know, Grandpa, I said, would you, would you pray a prayer of blessing over me? I want a double portion. And he said, I would be happy to. So you know what I did? I got down on my knees in my grandfather's chair. I knelt down, put my head like this. He put his hand on my head, and he prayed a prayer of blessing over me. I, I, I thought it was the only proper thing for me to do was to bow and let him bless me to Barack, in honor of who he is. Most importantly, in honor of who God is and what he'd done in his life. I was ordained last year in April, went to Springfield for the ceremony. They have you go up to the front. I'm in a suit. They gave me a stole. What's a stole? It's like a religious scarf, you know, that you never wear. It's got a cross on it and stuff. It's in my closet. thought about wearing it today, but it didn't match. Um, I want to be egalitarian, you know what I mean? Um, we go up there, and then they, they, they give you a charge. They have you open your Bible to a passage in Timothy. And then what they have you do is they have you kneel. I was on my knees, kneeling, and here's one of the leaders in front, and you put your head down like this. They put their hand on my head, and they prayed. I thought it was going to be a formality. Then I started crying. And it just felt so right to bow, to experience the weight of what being an ordained minister would be, what it would mean to lead people, what it would mean to preach the word, to bow. Carson was three when my grandfather passed, and we went over there, and I said, Grandpa, I'd love for you to pray for my son. Would you pray a prayer of blessing over him too? I'd read about it in the Old Testament. I thought, what can it hurt, you know? It's just, I'd love for you to do this. So Carson called him Peepaw, and I said, hey, Peepaw's gonna pray for you. He was three, three. We didn't practice this. I didn't tell him anything. Carson got off my lap, walked over to my grandfather who was sitting in his chair. 
and at three, bowed, put his hands on my grandfather's knee, put his head down. And my grandfather prayed for him at three. How did at three did he know to do that? He barocked, he, he, he understood, he was created for worship that you bow. I didn't think myself less than my grandfather. I didn't think myself less because I was being ordained. I bowed because I recognized the situation and the honor and the reverence that is to be given. You can do this privately. You can do this corporately. In preparation for this series, I I read a book called How to Worship a King by Zach Neese. And he talks about bowing and he talks about culturally how it is a struggle for us. But he said, if you really want to change your life, and and I'm wanting to do this, I haven't put it into, into practice yet. He said, take the next 30 days, roll out of bed, get on your knees before the Lord, and say, Father, what do you want me to do? With this day and with this life, my life, I bow down before you. What do you want me to do? Could I encourage you at some point to bow? Put that into practice. Do I have to do it for 30 days? I don't Do it for 30 seconds. I don't care. But bow. It is a posture of your heart. It is an attitude where you say, I bow, I barack before you. And see what the Lord does. The honor and the privilege that we have to do that. That's number three. Number four is this. Zamar. Zamar means making music to God with strings. Some people have said, well, you know, I don't like the fact that we have guitars in worship or we have strings in worship, but it's right here. It's right here, right? You remove the guitar, you have no Zamar. You know what I mean? It just goes away. That's about how first service reacted to that too, so, you know. No on that one for the future. But musical instruments... With your voice, your vocal cords, they, they vibrate or they resonate and they make a sound. Your vocal cords are like strings. Did you know that? They're like strings. You can make a sound to God. It says this in Psalm 92.1, It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name. O Most High, it is good to zamar, to make music unto the Lord. That's why we have instruments. That's why we have singers. Because it's worship. It's vertical. It's directed at Him. Here's the beautiful thing. We don't come here on Sunday mornings to perform. Y'all didn't buy a ticket. Right? Man, I hope they sing this song, this song, this song. If they do, my worship experience will be so great. No, no, we're not performing. We're doing what we do with excellence so that you can worship. That's why we're not supposed to rate the worship experience on Sunday morning. On a scale of 1 to 10, how good was it? I like the lights, like the environment, like the songs, but... uh, or someone says, ah, you know, worship really wasn't, it really wasn't good today. Well, that's good because it wasn't for you. <laughs> and it wasn't about you. It was about him. Hey, now there are in- instances where like people can't sing and they can't play and that's distracting. But even then, it's not about me. One of the most powerful worship services I ever was at was on an Indian reservation in South Dakota where there was no instruments. And the person leading couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. But the sincerity of the people that were there was overwhelming. Like we said a few weeks ago, we bring a sacrifice of praise. Not we come and someone gives us a gift of praise that we think is good enough, therefore, to respond. It's not about me. It's not for me. It's vertical. It's about him. About him. Number five, Shabbat. Everybody say Shabbat. 
Get the in to address in a loud tone, to shout. Psalm 63, 3 through 4. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. To shout unto the Lord. Shabbat. In a loud tone. Do it privately. You can do it corporately. But we shout unto God a voice of triumph, right? A voice of praise. A few years ago, I was dealing with a, a funeral. It was a, a suicide of a young person, and I was just messed up about it. I'd never dealt with that. I couldn't understand it. I started feeling depressed. I started feeling this heaviness. I was in my car. I'm like, I've had enough of this. I was listening to worship, and finally, I just opened my mouth and Shabbat unto the Lord, and I felt this release. Felt this release. Sometimes you got to open your mouth and sing. Open your mouth and shout. Don't let it just sit in your head. Express it unto the Lord. Get a little excited. God had so much worship in the Old Testament. So much. These people were partying like every other month because God had a festival for them. Right? We come to church and we're like... It's wrong. Holy, holy, holy. Hey, God is holy. But that doesn't mean he's boring. That doesn't mean he's quiet. That doesn't mean he's stiff as a board. He's given us a voice. He's told us to shout. He's told us to sing. He's told us to rave. He's told us to boast. And he's empowered us to do it because of who he is and what he's done. So Shabbat, undo the Lord. Here's number six. Tauda. Everybody say Tauda. To lift hands in adoration. Here's a good one. Because some people say you can't raise hands in church. Depending on where you came from. Now, where I came from, you could do whatever. Lift your hands, lift your feet, jump the pew. I mean, you just go for it. Just don't run into anybody, all right? Pentecostal churches have a greater insurance policy. I didn't know if you knew that because it's going to happen. Some of us came out of environments, though, where we, don't raise your hands. Why do I raise my hands? Well, because he asked for it. Because it's a sign of surrender. I lift my hands to the Lord. Do a study of raising hands in Bible and you'll see how hands begin to go up because of what God has done. So some of you, maybe you're not ready to do this. Maybe, maybe you can do this. Okay? Maybe you can just like pull them out of your pockets and turn them up. Okay? And maybe you can get a little more comfortable and come up a little higher, a little higher. This is about as far as you can get with your hands facing you. Turn them around and they just go up. Right? Woo! They just go straight up. Try it. Maybe one hand. Pat your heart. You know, I don't know. Whatever the case may be. Lift your hands. Try it privately first. Here's what I'm not saying. If you've never raised your hands, I'm not saying you haven't worshipped. I'm not saying the person next to you that looks like a helicopter is worshipping God more. I'm not saying that. Okay? What I'm saying is, is just try it. Lift your hands in reverence and awe of who he is. And see what happens. Do it privately. I think it's harder to do it privately than corporately, personally. I'm like, nobody's around and I'm doing this. You know, like I've been in the living room in the morning and I want to raise my hands in worship. I'm like, what's Lauren going to think? And I'm like, she's seen me do a whole lot more than raise my hands in the morning when no one's looking. I mean, like, who cares what she's going to think? You know? Do it privately and then do it corporately. We're going to have an opportunity to do that here in a few moments. But let me read you the scripture, Psalm 50, 23. He who offers praise glorifies me. 
And to him that orders his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. He who lifts his hands in adoration glorifies me. It is difficult. You do wonder what people think. You ever thought, why do so many people close their eyes during worship? Number one, to focus. And number one, just to block it out and say, I'm just going to worship. I'm just going to focus on him. Lift your hands. I thought it'd be kind of cool to show you a, uh, a, a demonstration of this, not personally. Um, but I thought, what, how do we see kind of like a lot of these words come together? Raving, boasting, shouting, singing, exuberance. How do we, how do we see that? And I thought, nothing better than 2011, you know, when David Freeze hits the game-winning home run in the championship series, right? I want you to watch this. I think they're going to crank it up a little higher so we can really feel it, okay? And I want you to observe the crowd. I want you to listen to them. I want you to hear what's going on at Bush Stadium in 2011. Freeze hits it in the air to center. We will see you tomorrow night. How many of you guys remember that? Yeah. For those of you that don't, what were you doing? I mean, come on. That was exciting. Now, I'm not here to say, you know, like I heard growing up, if you can worship at the Cardinals game, you can worship in church. I'm not saying that. But I I wanted you to hear what happens when something erupts in praise. A few years ago, we were at a championship game. Colton Wong hit a game-winning home run, and it was just electric I got goosebumps. The guy I was next to hugged me. I don't even know him. You know, it was like, it was, we were just like, yeah. And you're walking out and people are like, ah. it was overwhelming. The convergence of people coming together and then the emergence of praise. David Freeze will forever be loved in this city, won't he? He'd been like four other teams, but Pittsburgh, Chicago. He comes back up to bat. Cardinals stand up. They don't even, we don't even like the Cubs. Oh, but we love David Freeze. Woo! 2011 David Freeze. Yeah, for sure. Why? Man, he saved the city. They won the World Series. He can bomb the rest of his career, but David Freeze in St. Louis? Yada, Shabak, you know, Zamar, let's do it. And I get it. I still get, I got goosebumps watching it. That's what we have the opportunity to do for eternity. I read a quote the other day. It says, if you're not ready to worship, you're not ready for heaven. If you're not ready to worship, you're not ready for heaven. And not just singing and dancing, but the spirit of worship. We could come and give praise and honor and come together and our problems become small and our God becomes big. What I couldn't do on my own, I can do with people around me. I can look to my left and right and say, oh, you went through this and you went through this and here you are worshiping and praising God and it effervesces, it flows out of me. That's what happens. For number seven, I'm going to ask you to stand. Number seven is tequila. Everybody say tequila. Not tequila, tequila, okay? Tequila, all right? Exuberant singing. Exuberant singing is what it says. Psalm 34, one, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. We should sing exuberantly, 
unto the Lord. We're going to do that here in just a moment. But I want you to see Psalm 108, verse 1 through 3. It uses uh, three of these words for praise together. Oh God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise, Zamar. Even with my glory, I will praise Yada. Thee, O Lord, among the people, I will sing praises, Tehillah, unto thee among the nations. 